Hey, Circle Take listeners, thanks for joining me again. Today we are talking to writer and director Jordan Crowder about the first feature film he directed, the 2008 film Bend and Break. So as always, before you listen to the show, here are the Circle Take rules. Rule one, we always talk about spoilers. Circle Take is intended to be a deep, deep dive, and no plot turn is sacred, so you have been warned, spoilers abound. Rule two, before you go any further, you need to watch this movie. Now, I promise it's entirely possible to listen to this podcast without seeing the film, but it is a million times better if you watch the film first. Uh, So, before we get started, how to watch Jordan Crowder's Bend and Break. As of the recording of this show, it's really simple. Go to YouTube and type in Bend and Break feature film. That's it. Jordan has it there for you to watch for free. Unless you're listening in a YouTube blackout country, in which case, man, I just can't help you. But the rest of you, no excuses. Jordan Crowder's Bend and Break. Get a hold of it and give it a watch. All right, guys, everybody one, please. Straight away, guys, hold the talking. Here we go. All right, guys, pictures up. Pictures up. Pictures up. That's real sound. Sound speed. Jordan Crowder, interview, take one. All right. And action. This is The Circle Take. Conversations, insights, and lessons from directors about their first feature film. I'm your host, Jason Schmidt. I'm an independent film producer. In 2006, I directed my first feature film, and over my career, I've had a chance to work with dozens of first time directors, and I continue to find the experience fascinating. My guest today is writer, producer, director, actor Jordan Crowder. Over the past decade, Jordan Crowder has developed a loyal following online and is most known for his short films and sketches and for co-creating the award-winning series The Wingmen, which earned a Streamy Award nomination. As a producer, Jordan has produced both independent feature and documentary films, a comedy DVD, TV pilot, and dozens of viral videos. Jordan currently has distribution partnerships with YouTube and Comedy Central and in recent years has been recognized for directing shorts for the popular men's interest site The Art of Manliness. Back in 2008, Jordan wrote and directed his debut feature film, Bend and Break, a film that follows a group of friends as they chart the waters of young adulthood. Jordan Crowder, welcome to The Circle Take. Thanks for having me. Um, It'll be fun. Yeah, I hope. I think it will. (laughs) Especially after that music intro. It sounds like it'll be fun. It doesn't it? It (laughs) I'm already having that much fun. Take me back to the origin of this film. I think you were still in school? Yeah. Yeah, it started. I I started film school at the University of Texas back in 2005, and I'm originally from Canada, and in the province of Quebec, there's kind of a weird, the way they do school is really weird, where you graduate from high school in the 11th grade, then you have two years of this kind of junior college thing they call SAGEP, and then you do three years of university. So I had already done two years of SAGEP, which was like originally my film school. I studied, my concentrated in film, and then transferred over to the uh, University of Texas. And while I was there, I realized the first semester I was doing classes like history and math and all this stuff that I hated that I thought I, I was over with for right. life. Like, where did my film school go? <laughs> yeah. And so I got really frustrated. I attended like a, one of those uh, like master class type 
things that was open to the whole university uh, with Robert Rodriguez, and he was talking about how he made his first movie, and it was like a, a summer break or something from school. And so after my first year, just kind of randomly, my family, actually my dad's work moved him to Texas. So I was spending tons of money being <laughs> an international student attending UT, and I figured, you know what, I could take some time off, establish residency if I ever want to go back to film school, establish residency while my family moves to Texas and shoot a feature film. And that was that, that was how it how it happened. I just I took this two semesters off and worked on that. And so it was supposed to be just kind of this I think at the time I thought, oh, I'm going to make my first uh, first feature film. I'll never have to go back to school. I ended up going back to school. <laughs> right. <laughs> That's now, how it started. And you picked this film kind of based on your friends. Yeah. So it would be easy to kind of translate into script form. Exactly. How long did you work on the script for? I worked on the script for, it's funny, it's, it sounds like it's, it's kind of short, but it was about a month. And I had just a notebook of things my friends had gone through, certain, you know, dialogue and things just from being around my friends for years. And I just kind of took that stuff, turned it into a screenplay and that's really how it happened it was most the way that i usually work is because coming from a sketch and 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 improv background is a script is kind of an outline i don't spend much time redrafting scripts and 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 and, you know rewriting them until they're perfect so there wasn't like a lot of polish 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 right after the shooting date it was like you know this is close enough the actors are going to improv this and we'll move forward exactly cool and and how did did you did you have your producing team kind of in mind when you went to go do this thing? Yes, definitely. Actually, when I was writing the script, I actually, before I wrote the script, I talked to all of my friends that I wanted to work as crew and actors and say, hey, I'm gonna, I want to shoot this between this time period. Are you available? Are you interested in doing this kind of thing? So I knew what I had available to me in terms of actors and crew. In Montreal, where I grew up, I had a lot more connections than being in Austin and, and had, had a lot of locations that I knew that I could use that were available to me. So I wrote it based based on what was available to me at that time and kind of almost like reverse engineered the script that way and knowing, okay, I've got these actors and these locations. What can I come up with? Right. What's the story I can build with the puzzle pieces I've already got? Yeah, exactly. So let's talk about the nuts and bolts of the production itself. How many days did you shoot the film in? Well, we shot it over the course of two months and it was mostly nights and weekends. So they weren't all full days. It was all in little bits. Bits and pieces. And now is this because most of the cast and crew were still in school or working? Most of them were still in school or or working. So I had a bunch of PDFs of everyone's schedules on my computer. (laughs) And I would almost call it like uh, almost like a Rubik's cube in terms of right, building right. a schedule because you have everyone's you kind of have to see how it all fits together and then oh this one person something came up you change that and then suddenly everything rotates in terms right, of how right. you and this, this is all donated time I yeah, assume nobody's, yeah. nobody's getting paid for no. this this is all and th- there's no unions I, I assume there's no permits either no not, not this for this very, no. very much gun and run um, exactly and what kind of cameras did you use in 2008 I believe it's called a Sony A1U it was like an early HD mini DV cassette like there were HD cassettes mm-hmm. that went into it. It was a very small camera. That's all. I don't remember the exact. I think it was. I know that A1U were the numbers in it, and it was a Sony. I don't know. What Somebody can Google this right now yeah, and exactly. come up with the right answer. I know it's on our IMDb. And look page. at that camera and think to themselves, he shot a movie on that. Yeah, and it's it was it's funny because it was just a couple of years before the DSLR thing. Where I mean. 
movies. Right, just right. So indie How movies different so the film would have looked just a few years later, right? Yeah. What is it, like a necessity of that's the camera I can get a hold of? Exactly. Yeah, I knew that I wanted to do it in HD at the time because I had this idea that I was going to blow it on the film, which is like, <laughs> <laughs> oh, you know, like I just want to shoot right, on the best right. quality because if I want to put it on film. back then, film wasn't quite dead and it no. still seemed like a way to make your film legit was yeah. to get it on film somehow. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And it was actually, I borrowed the camera from a friend and former teacher from that college I went to in in Sejep. And he basically lent me all of the gear and just had me pay for the um, insurance. So Mm -hmm. it ended up being only a couple hundred bucks. And he was a documentary guy. So he had like three of everything and different, a lot of the time had different units working on stuff. So I had that basically, we were supposed to return it after every day we shot. And at one point he was just kind of saw how piecemeal the schedule was. He's like, yeah, just keep it until you're done. Right, <laughs> so, right. It's easier just to hang, hang on to yeah. it. Did he give you any lighting equipment or anything else or it, was it just the camera? It was uh, the camera and the audio gear and that was pretty much it. The tripods and stuff. But um, for lighting, that was another thing in, in terms of scheduling and writing the script. I tried to set it up so that we could use daylight as much as possible and then we mm-hmm. filled in with the old indie Home Depot lights and okay. things that we could use. <laughs> and how many people were on your crew? It changed from day to day if it was a bigger scene where there was more people and more involved there was there was more but it was pretty much always me my producer co- or co-producer Tim uh, Cormier and then the DP which was depending on the day it was either Philip Belmar or Antoine Rochette and they're all French names of course because it was in Montreal of course so those were always the main crew and then I mean that's one thing we'll probably talk about later in terms of learning on set but we did we kind of just randomly handed the sound equipment to whoever was available to right, volunteer right. that as, day. as a lot of like early you know student <laughs> yeah. films or early short films people don't really yeah. know how to crew up fully yet and they're yeah. sort of like well all you have to do is hold this Couldn't yeah anybody do that <laughs> yeah you know and, <laughs> then, and then you find out later no no that's not the case uh <laughs> now because you were shooting like nights and weekends, were you ever finding yourself on like a Sunday night just being like, we've got to go, we've got to go, we've got to burn, burn, burn until dawn kind of stuff and pulling like crazy long days? Yeah, and it didn't help that I was trying to shoot using daylight and it was the winter or fall in Canada, which basically the sun's gone by four o'clock. Right, yeah, I noticed (laughs) there's a, the film sort of seems like they're wearing winter gear pretty early on and then it takes it right through Christmas. Yeah. So I assume that was during the two months that you were shooting. Yeah, yeah. And um, basically it was, we started, I think it was October 3rd, and then we were shooting within a couple of weeks. And then I think our last day of shooting was like December 2nd or something. That's really tough. Yeah, so it was half of October and most of November. You'd done some shorts and some sketch comedy stuff yeah. um, before you tried on this sort of a, I guess it feels like it was almost an experiment for you in a way, this yeah. this feature film. Like you said your budget was a couple of thousand dollars. yeah. And, yeah. and that would be, when we're talking about a budget that low, what are we, I mean, what are we really talking about? Is that just kind of feeding people some, like, yeah. some takeout and stuff? Uh, f- yeah, feeding people when it was around, when we were shooting around a, a meal time. Um, but a lot of the times it was, like, after dinner or kind of between classes or whatever. So even that wasn't a huge part of the budget. Um, but mostly, yeah, a couple of little props here and there, some lighting things, the insurance on the on the equipment, plane ticket for me to fly back there because I might 
family had moved to Texas at the time, fly there and back. And I mean, that was pretty much it. I'm buying the tapes. The right, right. The, the tape stock, <laughs> the which tapes, is something yeah. we don't really think about anymore because yeah. everything's on you know memory sticks and stuff. Yeah. But these were actually physical cassette tapes yeah. that was being recorded. And, to. and I made sure that I tried to buy the best ones that I could. So they were like $20 each. <laughs> right. So and, the, and, the, the and those probably hold like, what, 60 minutes of, yeah. of time? You know, so yeah. you, you, I imagine that's quite a stack of tapes at the end yeah. of the day. At the end, it, it actually ended up not being as many as I thought, but it, by the end, we had 13 uh, tapes. So oh, that's surprisingly yeah. small amount of yeah. stuff. Yeah. So, so you're, you're being pretty economical as far as, as multiple takes. You were, you were kind yeah. of, you know, uh, w- would you say you did a lot of kind of one and done stuff where you're just like, I think we got that, we're moving on? Yeah, mostly. Um, and just because coming from a, an imp- like an improv and sketch background, a lot of the times you make a lot of decisions in, in editing. And so I knew that a lot of stuff was going to be thrown out. And when I look back at it and watch it, I'm like, oh, there's so much more that having <laughs> edited for 10 years. Oh, there's so much of this can go. But <laughs> as, a, as your first right. movie, everything's so precious. You want to leave it in. <laughs> um, well, let's get into the uh, the post production process. A good way to pick that up because a lot of times, just like you said, you know, your your first experience, you know, shooting something that you, you consider a feature film, and you want it all to be there and yeah. get represented. Did you bring in an editor, or did you do the editing yourself on this one? I did um, sort of the rough cut, at least most of it. And then at one point, I kind of felt stuck with it, where I brought a friend of mine who was a really good editor on our sketch work. That I was part of a sketch and troupe in. Austin, and that was a web series that we worked on. Um, it's funny because, like, before I finished the movie, I ended up working on this web series, ended up doing pretty well and picking up steam. So I was in school working on that other series and also still editing <laughs> the movie. Right. And he was just such a good editor. The web series we worked on was also very much the same way, where we had a scripted outline, but a lot of improv, and then it kind of gets cut together um, afterwards, and all the bad stuff gets left out. So he was really great at working on that, and um, he sort of saw how much time, and I was just kind of taking a long time to work on it. He's offered, he's like, hey, let me edit it. I'll, you know, we can get this done by by the end of the year kind of thing. And so he helped me. He was able to just save a lot of scenes, I think, like, because he would, he'd go to stuff that were from outtakes or uh, when the camera was rolling before we'd start and and pull things and build. And because of the, the way the movie is, it's kind of it's much more focused on realism. He was able to pull some of that stuff and blend it into where it felt like it was, it was actually supposed to be there in part of the movie. Movie. Did you guys ever find in the editing room that you need to get some reshoots or pickup shots or anything like that? Yeah, there was there was one shot that I know we shot that I could never find if we we lost the tape or something, and it was just this one this one shot um, where my character is talking on the phone in the bathroom um, in this part during this party. And we had to reshoot that. I shot that in Austin, you know, almost a year and a half later. Um, borrowed a friend's camera and we shot that and that was like one of the last things we inserted into the movie (laughs) did you ever look at the rest of the cut and feel like man if we had another moment or another little scene there to sort of yeah that that happened there's actually this one storyline between blake and andrew that originally was supposed to be more than what it was in the movie and we just ran out of time shooting one of the guys is a montreal actor we just didn't have time to finish it and we kind of had to come up with an alternative 
which I feel watching it now, it still feels unfinished, but the way that we shot it, it turned kind of the story into a punchline. And it ended up working fine for what it was, not ideal, but there was no way we could reshoot that. Another great way to get into this, uh, talking about those like missed opportunities and stuff. Yeah. Let's talk about mistakes. Uh, what we like to do is play a game uh, that we call Did That Really Happen? Uh-oh. This is uh, brought to you by the hive mind that makes up the comment section on IMDb. <laughs> uh, since your film is about young people fumbling toward adulthood, you're now going to hear about some mistakes made in other young adults talking about stuff films. <laughs> possibly submitted to IMDb by its fanatically observant users or possibly completely made up by our own resident IMDb geek. Okay. The rules are simple. Listen to the goof and tell us if it really happened or if we're full of it. Okay. Ready to play? Yeah, sure. All right. All right. Here's your first one. Watching young guys talk about stuff in a diner booth has become an iconic cinematic image. Mm -hmm. And a lot of that is thanks to Barry Levinson's 1982 film, which had so many of those scenes, they just called the movie Diner. Yeah. <laughs> when Eddie and Freebie are outside the diner discussing marriage... A cameraman holding a camera can clearly be seen reflected in the diner window behind him. Uh, the classic movie cameraman reflected yeah. in the window. I don't know. I know that movie pretty well, and that was like one of the main influences on Bend and Break. But I've, I haven't seen that. So I'm trying to remember if I've, I remember, well, actually, while we were shooting Ben and Break, I read so many interviews with Barry Levinson and he was talking about making that movie. And I don't remember that coming up. So I'm going to say it's made up, but I don't know. It's possible. You are correct. It is, okay. in fact, made up. Uh, that did happen in the film, but not in that scene. Okay. <laughs> All right. Here's your next one. All right. Before Winona Ryder was stealing Christmas lights in Stranger Things, or actually stealing things in real life, she was stealing the hearts of young Gen X guys in this 1994 film, Reality Bites. When Winona Ryder and Janine Garofalo return to their apartment after the car accident, when she's walking up the steps, Janine Garofalo has sweat patches under her arms, but when she gets inside, the sweat patches have disappeared. Sweaty actor continuity issue. Trying to remember that scene. I, I feel like that could be in there. I'm going to say yes, but I, I mean, I can't. I haven't seen it in years, so. You are right again. <laughs> that did, in fact, happen. Apparently, it must have been hot out. And yeah. then on the alternate day when they, in fact, shot the interiors, the uh, wardrobe <laughs> people actually did their jobs that day. Yeah. Cleaned her up. Well, that's what my mom's job always was, was wardrobe. <laughs> she had to keep an eye on that stuff. So she would have caught that immediately if I was watching it with her. <laughs> All right. Here's your last one. All right. Uh, your final quote comes from the reigning queen of shamelessly naked millennials, writer, director, and naked actor, Lena Dunham, oh from her debut 2010 film in which she gets naked, Tiny Furniture. Uh, sadly, I have seen this movie. <laughs> Ara and Jed are shown playing on the Nintendo Wii game console. Near the end of the film, Ara says today is Wednesday, May 23rd, but... The last time May 23rd was a Wednesday was in 2010. Counting back, this means the first day of the film would have been January 18, 2009. But the Nintendo Wii was not released until November 2009. Oh, letting a prop into the film that technically didn't exist when the film was made. 
I'm I'm gonna say because I remember playing Wii in before 2009. So I mean, I would say that would be that's that's probably made up. That is in fact false. It's okay. not made up. It's actually a gaff from the film Five Hundred Days of Summer. Oh, is it? Okay, I just reappropriated the game. <laughs> <laughs> I um, think of that if I was watching that. But yeah, there's another. Speaking of movie trailer, there's another thing in Diner where two characters are talking about going going on his honeymoon in Cuba, which at that point had fallen to communism, and that wouldn't five have years been, prior. Yeah, that wouldn't. It would have been because it would have been New Year's Day, nineteen sixty. Yeah, and the communists took over in fifty five. Yeah, exactly. Nerds <laughs> love it. Uh, so obviously, uh, you know, these IMDb geeks will, will capture every possible uh, mistake yeah. in the film, uh, regardless of whether you noticed it or not. But let's talk about things that you did notice. Was there anything that happened during the shoot that cost you a shot or a setup or some coverage that you just could not accomplish? Yeah, I, I was talking earlier about audio and just one of our guys that was supposed to do audio during one scene couldn't show up. I figured, you know, I could do this. I got this. I'm just going to do everything myself. I was the only, that was when I was the only person, one man crew that one shoot. And it's just, were you directing, running camera and trying to run sound simultaneously? Yeah. At the same time, <laughs> the camera and the pistol grip, uh, the shotgun mic in the other hand off camera, holding it aimed at them. And it was, I was using some sort of old mixer that was like from World War II, which I figured out early on in the shoot that it was just easier to just XLR directly into the camera and monitor it that way. But um, yeah, I had wished that I could have had, I could reshoot that scene with a proper sound person because I feel like it looked really great, but the audio was just terrible. We had to ADR it while I was working in Austin at the time and they were ADRing it in Montreal. It was pre-Skype and all that stuff, so I couldn't really direct it even from remote. Let's, let's take a quick listen to this scene. Okay. Um, the scene is uh, these two characters sort of reconnected. The The scene is these two characters are reconnected trying to rekindle a, an old relationship. Yeah. Just kind of trying to reestablish a connection, trying to get to know each other again for yeah. the first time. And the scene is uh, they're walking through the park, kind of talking about some stuff. And the entire soundtrack we're about to hear was completely rebuilt. Yeah. Myself, I was thinking about going out there and trying, you know, my hand at acting. You know, here there's not too much work. American productions come here and they hire Canadian actors, but it's only because the government forces them to. So they usually get stuck in these small, you know, unseen parts, you know, just little things, really crappy. Sounds like socialism at its finest. You know, the funny thing about that is when I watched the film, this scene came up and the first thing that I thought was, oh... He must have got some laughs on this day because <laughs> the sound quality just improved greatly. Yeah. And all of a sudden I'm like, I'm really connected. Yeah. And I'm like, oh, this is really interesting. And now the dialogue is stilted and weird. Yeah, you can hear weird. how much work it went into the editing to get it to make it into his it. face. Yeah. But it was funny. It didn't take me out of the film at all. Oh, really? I, and I didn't really realize it was ADR. I was yeah. just listening to their dialogue and I thought, oh, he must have gotten some better microphones on oh. that one day. Oh, well, that's good to know. So it's funny how, <laughs> you, you know, something you can obsess over as yeah. this tragic mistake that you yeah. thought, oh, they want to do kills me but yet you know as an audience member it just yeah. goes right by you well there was a lot of sound issues throughout the whole movie i think but i that one specifically like i, I think because as a director i'm more focused on performances of actors and i'm not as much of a director that's focused on the aesthetic necessarily and so for me just adring it just ruined the performances or the naturalness of that scene that so every time that i watched it i just hated it sure i mean <laughs> and, and honestly that's a really common reaction i get 
from yeah. directors a lot when you know when they have to ADR scene because the the production sound is just impossible to use. There's just too much noise and it can't be saved. And I routinely hear directors with that exact feeling about the scene is that their performance was just never matched yeah. to what it could have been and, and they feel like yeah. the weight of it is missing. And a lot of these are inexperienced actors at the time, so they didn't have any experience doing any ADR too, so they're just, it's just, right. it makes it, it adds so many layers of it that... Well, and, and sometimes <laughs> that's not even the issue, you know, yeah. I, I've been in the ADR booth with seasoned professional yeah. actors who just either don't like it or aren't good at it and know they're not, yeah. so they don't like it. Yeah. And other actors who really, you know, like Marlon Brando famously said, you know, he mumbled his dialogue so that he could ADR it later <laughs> and, and tweak the performance once yeah. he saw the cut. And he'd be like, oh, now I see what you did, let me change that. Yeah. Well, that's funny, because I heard some some rumor about Arnold Schwarzenegger or something being like the best ADR performer because he's he already has a thick accent to begin with. It's hard for him to act and speak English well. <laughs> well, so acting. he'll clean up the accent so in post production afterwards when he can focus on right, it. But, right. But and so that's as good as it gets for him, I guess. <laughs> Was there anything in post production where you found a mistake in post that you were like, "Oh, I didn't realize this problem existed until now that we're in post dealing with it"? And was there a solve for it that you found? That's a problem. I, I, I admit, as a film viewer, sometimes I even with my own stuff, I get lost in sometimes the story or the performance where I forget about some of the technical stuff until somebody points it out to me. And so a lot of people all say, oh, you know, you work in the industry, you must, you know, hate watching movies, you see all the mistakes. And I don't like that's because <laughs> I don't like if it's a if it's a bad movie I see the mistakes but if it's good and I'm lost in the story usually it, it'll take an editor or somebody else to point it out to me after the fact and I'm like oh man now we got to do something about right. this it's kind of a nice <laughs> gift in a way though to be able to yeah. still enjoy a movie without yeah. in, injecting your filmmaker into the experience yeah. of watching a first film you know some, a film for the first time yeah is there anything other than the scene we already talked about the ADR scene in the park that just kills you to watch there's well there's another adr scene too between the two characters which is kind of a sort of breakup scene in uh june's apartment that kills me to watch that <laughs> so, so it really ADR. is just the adr that yeah. just kills you each well, time well also there's like we were shooting in an actual diner and so there's like fridges that are turning on and all this stuff that like i just wish like we could have had more control over the set but we were given it graciously by the people who own the diner. They just let us shoot there during the day. And now I assume if anyone who watches the film will, will see that the diner booth that you're predominantly shooting in is, is in the back corner of yeah. the restaurant, quite obviously. Yeah. Now I'm assuming what happened is they said, hey, you can shoot here, but we're going to be open. Yeah. So much, you've yeah. got live business happening in the front of the diner and yeah. you guys are trying to make a movie in the exactly. back. And they, they, and I think some of that, also the fact that we were like, we didn't have a professional sound guy recording it. Cause I've since done shoots where we've shot in a live environment or whatever, and we were able to get what we need to smooth it out or make it feel more natural or get in the right room tone, all that stuff where we could blend it and people don't notice where at that time we just, I wasn't experienced with audio. We didn't have any person that was good with audio at the time. So so right. we got what we got. <laughs> right, right. Well, that brings us to the circle tape. Let's talk about, like you're saying, realizing the importance of, of audio. Yeah. As far as this first experience making a film, looking back on it now, what's the biggest thing that surprised you about the experience? Hmm, that's a good question. I mean, I think, I think that I almost went into it a little cocky thinking, oh, I got this. I've, I've done enough short films and I've been through film school that 
I'm going to be able to come out with something really good. And it's fine for what it is. It's a little time capsule that represents where I was as a filmmaker and where I was at that time in life. But it wasn't something that let me quit film school. <laughs> I, I kind of realized what in post, I'm like, eh, I should probably go back to school and, 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 you know, get a little more experience and stuff and still get a degree. I don't know. I think I do. I don't, I think that I learned a lot more doing it than I thought I would. I think that I had thought, Oh, I've got kind of experience that I've had in school, but I just learned more about scheduling and producing and why there's a different crew member for every job and for an audio, like why an audio person is important, all that stuff. After that, it changed the way that I worked on every production, whether it's a I'm doing a corporate video for a client or doing my own narrative work. I learned more doing that than actually doing film school. Was there something, and I imagine there's probably a couple of things on this yeah. particular project. Was there some things that when you came out of this, you were like, I'm going to make a no, I'm not doing that again. Yeah. Making sure that we have somebody designated for audio was right, one of right. the things. I think I learned that was a bit, my biggest takeaway was the audio thing. I think too, when working on a small budget project, I think because a lot of the movies that I really love, like we talked about Diner or even like the Brothers McMullen and stuff that were influences on this movie, having so many characters made it a issue for scheduling. Sometimes I feel like working on a smaller scale project budget, you know, with what's available to you, like keeping it somewhat constrained to a smaller number of characters, less locations, and focusing more on telling a good story around, uh, you know, a much smaller scale, I think. Because it's so easy for me, like, liking characters and dialogue and like, oh, yeah, somebody should say this. Oh, this kind of character would be... And then you add on suddenly, I don't know, and Ben and Break has, what, eight or nine the characters in it. There's six or seven main characters yeah. in the film. That's a lot of characters. Yeah. And so and that, do, I think that's the biggest takeaway is do you think characters. Do you think it would have been radically different as a shooting experience if you'd block shot the entire thing instead of doing like nights and weekends, two days at a time here, two days at a time there, and really shot it in say two or three solid weeks of shooting? Yeah, I think I think it would have been more consistent too. Because I mean you could <laughs> You could see the haircut changes from scene to scene when you're right. watching it because it's yeah. over two months. And I think just the way that the cast and crew would gel together would be a little better because you're you're not having to stop and then restart. Once you're in a rhythm, right? You know, you could. It was it was almost a marathon of shooting like eight or nine like short films in, yeah. in consecutive weekends. Exactly. Like, yeah. it, it feels like it might've been more exhausting than it needed to be almost. Yeah, definitely. Do you think that took a toll on you? I mean, I was 22 or you got all the energy in the world. It, so yeah. It didn't, I was up, you know, I didn't sleep much and was working on it and, you know, was really excited working on it to where I wasn't, I was stressed out with, oh, crap, we got a rainy day because it's Montreal and it's the fall and <laughs> the weather's unpredictable. And so the scheduling stressed me out a little bit. But once we were on set and we were shooting, like that's where I felt like I felt more like I was in my element. Oh, and this is what I really love to do. So that kind of counteracted some of the <laughs> other stressful parts of it. Do you keep a list now of things you would do 
differently or things that you would improve the process of the next time a feature film product comes up for you? Yeah, my wife's probably always making fun of me on that because we work together now. We have our own small production company and it's like I'm always like at the end of a shoot. All right, next time let's make sure we blank or next time let's make sure we don't do (laughs) blank. And so it's always, I feel like in production you're always improving upon your last production. You learn something each time. I don't know. I think it's a constant learning process no matter I mean, how long you've been doing it. <laughs> because it is a constant learning process, because I'm actually glad you brought that up, because yeah. uh, this film is, what, about almost 10 years old now. Yeah, I mean, we shot it 10 years ago. Right. I didn't finish editing it till like, two years after, so. Right, right. <laughs> uh, you know, as, as I talked to a uh, filmmaker named Greg Travis who took 30 years to finish his film, oh, wow. so you did pretty good. <laughs> is there a, let's talk about advice for filmmakers, because yeah. that's kind of like, where I try to end this. Okay. Uh, and that's kind of the whole reason we're, we're talking yeah, is to parse these details and, and pull these ideas out. You've made, and since this film as well, you've made a bunch of short products, um, some TV stuff, short films. What can you tell somebody who's maybe made some short films, possibly gotten to film school, maybe not. People have a, a robust YouTube career mm-hmm. uh, with no training formally. And maybe they're working in the business, which can afford you some opportunities, but maybe they're not. Again, maybe yeah. they're you know out in the middle of the country, not connected to the business, but they're producing content. Yeah. And they're thinking about their first feature film, and they're yeah. thinking about the moment might be right for them to do this. What kind of advice can you give them? Well, I would say if they think that the moment is right to do their feature film, I would say do it because, I mean, you really only get a first try to, to do it and it's pretty much okay to fail through that, <laughs> through that first time, you know. If it's good, you have a good movie when you're done. If it's not, you put yourself through like a film school marathon of, learn, of learning stuff. One thing that I see a lot of people doing is they think, they feel like, oh, I need to have this amount of budget to do it, and I need to make sure that I can get a, a certain actor to be in it or whatever. And I feel like they focus too much on that aspect of it rather than telling a good story. And mostly, I mean, telling a good story, that's basically what you need to do with your first feature film. Like, And you need to think about what kind of story I want to tell. How is this going to be a reflection of me as a filmmaker? How is this going to like, what does this say about me as in terms of the future projects I want to do? I would say keep the budget really low. Do what you can for free and see what you can do for free first. <laughs> I see people that are like, oh, I'm going to make a short for, or I'm going to make a feature for, you know, 50 grand or whatever, which to me seems like a lot since Ben and Break was under two grand. Right. And I'm like, just do what you can for free. If it's either doing a feature film or a really good short film, I would say make a really good short film and put all of your time into making that really well, really good, or just making the feature for free and not worry about budget and all that kind of stuff equipment, all that kind of thing. Just make it tell a good story first. Jordan Crowder, thank you so much for being on The Circle Take. Well, that's our show today. The Circle Take is produced by Blue Apples Media. Our music is written and performed by Corey Fader Jacobs. Check him out on the internet at themasterfader.com. You can subscribe to our podcast on iTunes where there's always more episodes to check out. You can like us on Facebook at The Circle Take. We're also on Twitter and Instagram at The Circle Take where we post photos from our conversations, schedule updates, and previews of upcoming shows. And of course, all of this, the podcast links, clips, notes, and more is all on our website at thecircletake.com. Thanks for listening. I'm Jason Schmidt and you can circle that one.